Welcome everyone to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. Today I'm joined by Vilja Sommerbach, Johan Hansen, Thomas Leporsche and Henrik Johnson to discuss when is a game ready. Before we begin, let's start with some introductions. Vilja, do you want to kick us off? Can do. So my name is Vilja Sommerbach. I started in the games industry in 2000, so it's quite a while ago. Started working at Funcom, did that for a few years. Did a stint in Australia at some companies there, came back, went to IO in, uh, in Denmark, been to Sweden at a few companies there, and now I'm back in, um, in Norway with Funcom again uh, as a game director on the, um, the unannounced um, survival open world crafting game set in the Dune universe. Uh, so that's me. Awesome. Johan, how about yourself? Yeah. Um... My name is Johan. I'm 41 years old. Uh, I'm from Stockholm, where I work and live with my family. Uh, I've been working in the IT industry, both games and other endeavors, for 22 years. It started just before the dot-com bubble burst. Uh, I've been making games for nearly 30 years. I started back when I was 14. Uh, I have a background as a developer and since 2014 started moving into more lead and management-based roles. Uh, I have my own company and do consulting gigs in the daytime and the game development in the evening on a game called uh, Wardens on Steam. Um, yeah, that's me. Awesome. Tom, how about yourself? Hi, I'm Thomas Lepoche. I'm 29 and I've been working at Voodoo, a game company, for one year. I used to be a former developer before and I switched to product management afterwards. And after working in several fields such as uh, logistics and analytics, I decided to switch to video game industry. And now I'm working as a technical product manager on A-B testing tools and all the internet solutions at Voodoo. And it's a pleasure to uh, be at this podcast with everyone. Awesome. And finally, Henrik. Hey, Harry. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Henrik Johnson. I'm, uh, uh, I've been working in the games and graphics industry for uh, since 1994. Uh, I've been working on small companies and big companies and big games and terrible games and all kinds, everything in between. Uh, I was at Ironstorm in Dallas back in the day when when um, that was a big, big thing. And uh, I've been working at Ghost Games in Gothenburg, working on the Need for Speed titles uh, more recently. Uh, I'm currently at uh, Amplifier Game Invest, part of the Embracer Group, and we... I now work as a technical advisor and a game scout for uh, Amplifier. We look for good game studios to acquire and nurse into becoming fantastic studios to work at. Yeah. Lovely. All right, let's make a start. I want to start with Vilja. Vilja, what is your question and the context behind it? So my question is, what was the most ready game that you worked on when it shipped? And what do you think were the factors that actually led to it, it being more launch ready than other games you worked on? All righty. Uh, Johan, do you want to start on that one? Yeah, sure. Uh, not to go too far back in my career, I will take something from the last couple of years. So then I've only mainly been working on titles that already shipped. And one of those examples is Angry Birds 2. I went from a very classical release into a full live service game uh, during my time at Rovio. And two main things. So first of all, it had a strong technical foundation, 
we had skilled developers that worked hard to get uh, everything, the core of everything up and running. Uh, we also had a great core set of tools and support from HQ, uh, tools that have been proven to work well for other Rovio games. Uh, but most importantly, uh, it was not over-engineered. It was built to do exactly what it needed to. So this made the solution very easy to understand or relatively easy to understand, kept costs down and still being able to serve a large uh, player base. And secondly, uh, engaging features with chat, leaderboards, clan-based events uh, were a first for the studio to develop, but it was received uh, really well by players. And uh, we had uh, A-B testing set up already from these core tools I mentioned previously, uh, and that we used for uh, frequently for uh, major like MVP features and changes throughout my time when I was at uh, Rovio. Awesome. Uh, how about you, Henrik? What's your experience? Well, I, I'm going to answer, have to answer in two ways because the most ready games is a game that was never, I don't believe it was ever patched, uh, but that was in my casino game time uh, years, which when, when uh, any type of, of uh, update to a, to a piece of software uh, had to be recertified by, and if you believe that uh, Sony or Microsoft are tough to, to let stuff on their consoles, uh, getting stuff recertified by national, national gambling commissions uh, get, tends to make it even worse. So those games were, you know, they were casino games. They were not really technically that much to improve on once they were, they were shipped. But I would, from a proper video game perspective, I would say the, the Need for Speed 2015 release. Uh, I was, uh, I had the pleasure of sitting, uh, sitting in the war room uh, when we released that game, so we could see all the live reports of, of well, number of players and everything, and how many server instances we had running. But we were also seeing the crash reports coming in live, and we kind of had to dig into those uh, very, very quickly, of course, to see what, what they were. Uh, as anyone knows, uh, released a game where you you go from having a couple of QA testers run the game, play the game, until you have a hundred thousand players playing at the same time. It's a very you know it's very different. Uh, so even though the crashes that seem r rare, uh, they tend to crop up quite quite more frequently when you have a lot of lot of players. But we were it was quite good. We we found a couple of small bugs, nothing disastrous, and the number of players stayed within the safe limit we had on the number of servers. So there was a good estimate on the number of you know how many players will we have, how many servers do we have to have ready, how many server instances do we have to spin up, and um, the game was in a relatively good state. Of course, it was an uh, it was a big game. It was a frostbite game. Uh, lots of patches were let out. Uh, you know, lots of bugs. Uh, as always in, in a big AAA title, but it was still, it functioned and gave the players the most of the, the experience they wanted, Mo at least most of the players, the experience they we wanted them to have. Then, of course, you get the other problems that we're, we're coming into that later on, I think, but uh, people are not, it's rare to, it's hard to satisfy every player, of course, so... Um, but that, I think that's the, the game that was the most ready and felt the most complete on, on release. Would you say it was like the estimation part that made it like kind of more ready? Like when you said there was a good amount of servers? 
I think I think that if we had gotten the estimation of the number of simultaneous players wrong, I think that would have been a much worse launch. And not so much because of the game wasn't ready in, in terms of uh, uh, you know software quality, but uh, from from a you know infrastructure perspective instead. It would have been different, but the players would of course not know that. So that would, you know everyone would hate it. Even you know uh, people who got into these problems would would hate it quite a bit. So. Uh, we we made it quite well. Nice. All right. I want to move on to Tom. Tom, what do you think? Well, actually, we had two games. We were uh, we considered really ready when we launched them. The first one was Castle Storm. It was launched like four years ago, and I asked uh, I asked the studio that was in charge of it, and he told me that the reason they thought it was really ready is because the loop for the gameplay was complete with a reprogression level after level. And with the all the features that were unlocked as you were playing, and they were really feeling like a like a completion uh, sensation when they launched the game. But the second one was really most uh, much much more funny. It was uh, Snake Vessels Block, and it's because when we launched it, we were basing our estimation about the the estimation about how it's going to bring money on the CPI, the cost per install. And when we tried it and we launched it. We thought it was a bug, but we saw like zero dollars of CPI. We thought that it was something uh, like a problem with the with the, the engine or something like that. Uh, after after investigation with Facebook, they told us, well, it's not zero, but it's zero point zero four dollars, which is almost nothing. And we're like, okay, this game is ready to be launched. I mean, it's costing nothing and it brings much so much money. We have to do it right now. And this is what happens. And we never had this again afterwards. But one of so the best uh, success. Basically, make a great game. <laughs> Definitely for Voodoo. I don't know for the players, but at least for us, yes. Awesome. I want to take this back to Vilja. What's been your experience? So my experience, actually, this is something that has shaped my philosophy and how I try to, to work with, with, with teams going forward. So for me, um, uh, working on Syndicate, the, um, the Starbreeze FPS from 2012, um, this was set in the, the you may, might have heard about uh, the syndicate uh, from uh, the Bullfrog pro Productions in 1993. This, this is the first person shooter of that. So I actually joined the project late. We had a little bit more than a year. Um, however, they had really built a solid core game ex experience. Like the, the, the shooter gameplay was tight. Uh, so jumping into it, I felt that, okay, I understand this completely. Now we just have to build the content for it. So we had a solid core and then building the content. We needed almost all the levels had to be built. Uh, all the bosses needed design and, and, and implementation and some of the enemies needed finalization. But the second to second, the core of it um, was, was, was really good. Now, um, what that helped us do was to scope it in a sensible manner because we knew exactly what would be lost if we took something away. So we could safely make cuts uh, based on uh, based on that uh, that knowledge. Now, um, this kind of solidified my belief that polish isn't just something that you that you do at the end. Like a lot of games, you just build them and you try to cram as much as you can um, into them. Um, everything is interfering with everything else. You don't exactly know what is doing what is doing what. And then when you ship it, it's like, well, I hope it was a good one. You kind of almost don't know what you had until it's released. However. This time, I was so 
like I understood completely what the game was. So everything we took away wasn't a gamble. It was just, no, no, we don't have time to finish this. So to me, that has, uh, that has solidified my belief that polish isn't just something you, you do in the end. You need to bring features up to be good enough so you understand their place in the game. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that's my, my take on that. Yeah, so, and I, I want to follow up on that, uh, Villar. I, th I think that there is was something that we tell our students quite a lot is that, you know, or and I t tell the junior students quite a bit is, is that the second to second is, is so vital and that the, to getting the, the thing right. If you're, if you're running and the, the main thing you do in the game is running and shooting, then running and shooting must feel absolutely fantastic. Like otherwise it, that has to be fun. Uh, so, and then of course, Polish is a different, uh, it has, it means has different meanings. Like so, sometimes someone would say, I will just polish this uh, UI a little bit and they will spend time, you know, making the exact colors and shapes look perfect. And that's maybe not exactly what we mean all, all the time with Polish, but the t like, like the tightness of, of the, the feeling of, of the gameplay, the second to second, if that is, you know, immeasurably enjoyable by just doing it, uh, my favorite example is uh, Super Mario Brothers. I, I love it, I, and I would probably play it even if it was just running and bouncing on, on the different levels, like the side-scrolling part of it. I don't need, really need the monsters. I don't really need the, the level ups and stuff to enjoy just that feeling of running and jumping in, in that game, and they have really, really nailed it. And other games does that really, really well. Uh, Doom was a good example for just you know, running fast and shooting. Uh, I still see games that hasn't done their homework when they try to make a shooter that you, you have to have the, the movement and the shooting must feel good. Uh, so yeah, I absolutely agree with you on the polish part there, uh, Villar. I think that when you, when you polish the core elements of, of the gameplay, that's, that's when it gets really, really good. Nice. Any other questions on this topic or should we move on? All righty, let's move on to Johan. Johan, what is your question in the context behind it? Yeah, so my question is, uh, is there anything else you have to consider when releasing a sequel as opposed to a non-sequel game? Do you have any context behind that? Why, why are you asking this question? Well, there's been a lot of, uh, the last couple of years, there's been a lot of discussions for certain sequels that maybe didn't deliver on what the player wanted, expectations from the player base and expectations maybe from the studio and what they wanted to do. So there's sometimes this kind of mismatch once players are aware of a series, they like something about the previous game, they have certain expectations. How can you manage this in an efficient way, basically? All righty. I would like to start with Vilja on this one. Vilja, what do you think? So my answer isn't particularly long, but uh, one thing is like, well, the obvious one is, do you have enough features, enough new features? Um, and as you all know, when you make the second game in the series, you need to have a bigger world. It needs to have co-op and definitely a grappling hook, right? Those are the those those are must-haves. Um, but for me, what I think is interesting, and I think it was Sid Meier who said who said this uh, something along these lines. To me, it's like, well, where do you innovate? where do you evolve uh, and what you keep as is because we all want to do everything bigger and better but it's like i think targeting those and it's not easy but targeting those is is what i think should start 
as early as possible because if you if you st stay stick to that then you can make and stand by your choices uh, later on so uh, so that's my my take on that i like that a lot because if you know from the very get-go right what are you going to change and then what you're going to keep as is like imagine the character movement was perfect in the first game please don't touch that right because <laughs> that ruins everything uh awesome i want to move on to henrik now Henrik, what do you think? Yeah, well, so uh, this is interesting to me because I worked on the Need for Speed series and this Need for Speed you know, franchise has released, over, I believe, over 30 different uh, games. And when you have a community who have all grown up and it started in 94, so it's uh, the, the community of game players of Need for Speed is such a passionate and long-term, um, have such a long-term relationship with the, the, the game series, the franchise. And, and you get the you get the, the people who say it has to be more like underground, and the others will say no, it's, it has to be more like carbon, or it has to be more like the nitro, or 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 most wanted, or hot pursuit. Like it, it is very difficult to to manage expectations when the game series have been, you know, if we now we're not just talking from like a one one first game and then the sequel to the to the the, the initial game. But a, a big franchise of game titles that that where you have to keep the, the core gameplay uh, the same so that you keep it the, you know similar to to what the game is. Need for Speed is racing, right? There, there, there's there's high speed racing uh, and being chased, adrenaline stuff, and uh, and then the what you add to that gives like when you step away from the second so the second to second has to be fairly similar that, that feeling of playing a certain game has to be very similar and then the the minute to minute and hour to hour those can change quite a bit um maybe not so much the minute to minute but like once you finish the race what happens after you finish the race that can change that it's that's allowed to change so the, the overstepping arc. So while I and I fully agree with like the, this this Sid Meier thing that you take away some things, you you add some things, and you change you uh, completely reorganize something else, some other parts. Uh, but you can you can also uh, you can in order to be innovative enough, but not too much. You 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 can't change the core of the gameplay. But you can change the the stuff on the outside. The, I'm not going to call it superficial because it isn't. But but the the, the hour to hour um, gameplay, the way the player evolves through the story, right? So it's 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 been an honor and a pleasure and a very very strange journey to work on two Need for Speed titles. It's uh, very very um, what do you call it? Humbling and educational for sure. I think that's. That's all I got, I think. Nice. Cool. Uh, Tom, what are your thoughts? Well, I kind of agree with what you said. And what was worth mentioning was the community. You can't have a sequel if you have a community behind that uh, follows you and wants you to have another sequel because they like the gameplay and they want something like maybe not brand new, but with new features and additional gameplay. And as we do, we have been building mostly hyper-casual games, which do not really rely on uh, sequels. But we have one game that succeeded in this part. It was paper.io. We had a gameplay with the first one. We With the second one, because it went up to paper.io 4, so four versions of this game. 
The second one, we decided to make it more fluid with a more um, free control of the joystick without having to draw like manually all the uh, shapes uh, with your finger. In the third one, we decided to do some 3D, bringing it like, like a kind of uh, isometric uh, view of the, of the game. And but we also changed a few things that didn't really appeal the players. And in the fourth, well, it's a mix between the three and the two and second one. We saw that in the second one, we had the gameplay and some features that worked pretty well, but that we lost when we switched to the third one. And we decided to bring them back to life in the fourth one, but by keeping the 3D part. So sometimes making a sequel is also trying to check what worked well in the first uh, versions and maybe not bringing them again. And this happened in several games such as World of Warcraft, uh, Final Fantasy XIV, where they decided to bring again new features that worked in the past. They tried to kill it to see it's going to make a change. And finally, players have been were asking for it. And this is why I think you're heavily dependent on your community. And we should listen to them when they're asking for some features that disappeared and they want it again. Because they are the players. We are not them. Nice. I like that. Uh, I want to take this back to Johan. What do you think? Yeah, this is difficult. I, I agree. I agree with every uh, point that's up here, especially Henrik's points and the Sid Meier quote. I, I read that he called it something, this principle is like a third of each three different categories, I think. Uh, but also like one recent example uh, of a release is like when you feel like you have to do it, you know, bigger, better, more players and so on. That If that is just something you do because you're so used to it, you can end up in problems, for example, with the uh, latest Battlefield game where you went to 128 simultaneous players, you know, the, the maps had to grow and then all of a sudden the travel distance become very large and the close encounter kind of play styles that a lot of players like kind of disappeared in that. So it sounds, it looks really good on paper, like we have doubled the amount of players, but actually like, what's the reality? How is it to play? Does it feel like a new game or is it, does it still have the vibe? So yeah, it's um, difficult. I like that. Don't change the vibe. I mean, don't, you know, just don't double the play account for the sake of doubling the play account, right? Uh, nice. Uh, I think this is a good time to move on to Thomas's question. Thomas, what is your question and the context behind it? So, I think in most, uh, in most of your fields, we have to A-B test a game before launching them, especially the features or the economy or anything inside. And I wonder uh, which feature do you systematically A-B test before launching a new game? What is really important for you to verify, to check or to compare before deciding to release them on the source or in the market? Nice, I wanna start with Johan, what do you think? Yeah, sure. Uh, a couple of things. So first of all, marketing materials is super important, like key art logos and screenshots to see what actually works. And different things could be uh, work differently on different platforms as well. Uh, and art, you know, will most likely be the first thing a potential player sees of your game. And so to draw their attention uh, in a very crowded market, you have to make sure you get them interested and want to learn more about your game, basically. Uh, another thing is features that have gathered a lot of feedback, uh, good and bad, internally during playtesting. If they, yeah, cause a lot of discussions, then it's good to see what kind of angle do we want to take on this and try different variations. Um, and also like features that basically aren't battle tested yet or lacks data from other similar games, 
a little bit a little bit of unknowns those you have to be kind of careful with and not just assume that it's going to work out so yeah I like that i like it a lot uh Vilja, thoughts so I don't have a lot of experience actually with A-B testing on the big games uh, that I worked on. Um, in, in, in those bigger games, so probably the bigger they, they get, like you, you, you test the things that are difficult to do um, if, unless you have a lot of players. So like per server performance and, and things like that. And all, on the other end, you might get input from various consultant consultancy firms on how well they think the game will perform and if we're hitting the target audience, stuff like that. Um, now, if if you go to mobile games, the, the, it's a different story. I did a short stint in mobile games and um, we A-B tested everything against monetization. So um, if you had a new, and this was for, 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 for live game basically, so, but like, it's like, they never, they never, you know, they are never complete. So in, in that sense, every time we released a new feature, which was every two weeks and probably even more feature, we would, we would A-B test and say, hey, what, what gives us the most money? Is it version, is it those who get the feature or those who don't get the feature? Is it version A and B? So we tested a lot against monetization. Um, yeah, but bigger games, I mean, you know, you need a certain level of polish for that. And as I, you know, touched upon before, if your game isn't solid enough, it can be really difficult to A-B test it. So it's easier to A-B test smaller, less complex things, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering that when I was reading this question, like on a big game, how feasible it is to A-B test. Uh, I have a cheeky question before I move on to Henrik. Like, can you A-B test anything in a big game? Like, is there something you can A-B test? Go on, Henrik, tell me. Uh, when, when it comes to uh, bigger games that run on live servers, uh, you can you can A/B test a lot. You can change. You can see how, how players react to, uh, for example, in let, let's talk about Need for Speed some more. Um, <laughs> but because it becomes a very clear answer, like if you want the the, uh, you can change the drive styles from for for how the AI drives, for example, in in competitions. Do players prefer a constantly approaching enemy or, or will they try to overtake you in, in rapid bursts rather than like the drive style of the enemies can be A-B tested because it's driven from a server, right? Uh, the, the way different cars feel uh, when you the, the handling, all, all is server driven, so you can update the server, with different servers with different settings uh, and do, you know, dig out who, who what, what people seem to enjoy most or what cars they enjoy most because of because of these different settings. So you can get, uh, I mean, there's plenty of that kind of how much damage does a shot hit with a shotgun do with against, uh, you know, a, a pistol shot or whatever. There's a lot of that. How does it feel to shoot a monster? Uh, can do I need two hits with a handgun or, or do I need three hits, et cetera, et cetera. There, there's a lot of stuff that, that will, uh, that that leans very you know well towards A/B testing. You can see the different how how people uh, approach the game. The hard part I think is uh, with with a smaller game, it's it's easier to read the reaction. Uh, people quit playing the game very easily if if they get too frustrated. A um, a bigger game, especially a game that they some players have paid quite a lot of money for, you don't know if they keep playing because they really really. Uh, enjoy the game or if they just want to really really get their money worth uh, of the game so to speak uh, so so there's 
I say there's there's lots to A B test in a big game, and uh, and then of course you can A B C D E F G test things because there's many many variables to to play with, uh, but it can be a little bit harder to to gauge the reaction from from the audience because just in the, in the same way because there's so many variables that you know be, cause um, cause gameplay to to um, vary for them. But yeah, definitely, and and tweaking the servers, tweaking tweaking how difficulties work and different things. I mean, it's it's uh, a lot of that goes into these bigger titles now for sure. At least yeah. at least the ones that are server driven, like uh, and even single player games, they can you can get them to download a you know new script of the new new settings uh, for each uh, startup uh, and. Uh, the, the swords make a little bit more damage and the axes are a little bit weak or whatever. Uh, and, and you can A-B test basically like that as well. Yeah, when you mentioned A-B test, the feeling of shooting a monster, I was like, I wonder how that comes up in the code, uh, right? Like, how do, what is a good feeling of shooting a monster? What is the bad feeling? But like you said, maybe turning off the game, switching off, playing for a lot longer shooting a lot more monsters i don't know but that seems like a difficult challenge for whoever's reading that it does but but if you can tell by if people start using the shotgun more uh, because of a certain tweak or if they stop using the the uh, auto gun or whatever like the, the different weapon types get more or less use so they they can you can read it quite well even though you have to you know know how to look for it i guess yeah that's that's, that's the thing you can't really test this unless you get people in the game which is, you know, when we come back to when is a game ready, I keep just, thinking it's never. <laughs> just, just another thing is that when you when you A/B test, it's also reading the data, right? Because it's it's like yes, we have all this data. What do we use it for? And sometimes the, that data can be used to kind of, well, I want this answer, so I, I validate it in a way that appeals to me, basically. So there it is. It is actually more complex um, scenario than one might think uh, initially. Yeah, I wonder how you would avoid that, uh, Tom. What do you, what do you think? This is a big problem because we have a, a whole team of data analysts uh, internally. They usually try to teach and to train our users uh, and our publishing managers and all the developers on how to interpret data and how to take conclusion from that. Well, they try to draw conclusion for them just so they do not have to do it, and they say it's only like an interpretation. You can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. You are the ones who decide the end. But guys. If something, if the numbers and figures tell you that it's dropping the LTV, maybe it's going to drop out the LTV. Don't think that maybe according to your intuition is going to work. I mean, the numbers do not lie. Maybe you do. Yeah, and just to come back to you, Tom, just in general, like, what do you systematically A-B test? Well, we have two big uh, families of uh, A-B testing, which is the ad monetization. Uh, Vilya was talking about that, and the monetization. So the monetization is mostly related to the gameplay, so which feature we're including in the game. Uh, for example, it can be the enemy difficulties, it can be uh, new modes, it can be uh, some session scheduling or something like that. And the ad monetization is all, uh, everything related to the waterfalls, the different type of advertising campaigns we are releasing and publishing, and how well they are performing. So the first one is mostly dedicated on the retention and the playtime and increasing the experience of our users. And the second one is about making money. Is basically, if we can get, uh, get good at both of them, then we have players that continue playing to our games. And at the same time, we're continuing also making money on them. 
So we are A-B testing uh, both of these features, but we are quite short of time because usually before launching MA, we have only like two, three, four weeks at most. Uh, we are in an industrial pace and we need to release games as, uh, as fast as we can. So this is why we cannot spend like three months or more, uh, such as for AA, triple A games. And we have to be quite precise on the AB, kind of AB test we want to launch. So we start to have like a trend of AB test we usually do every time. And sometimes when we have a good hunch, a good intuition, then we try new initiatives, but uh, we do not really have time for exotism, let's say. Yeah, 100%. I have a question here because I think we do have some time. So I wanted to go a bit deeper into this is when it comes to like an early access game or soft launch, you know, a mobile game, that's an opportunity to A-B test. So like when would you guys feel the game's ready to be taken out of early access? Is it purely monetary, like when that happens? Or like when do you do a full launch? Is like when you feel like the game's polished? Anyone got any thoughts on that? Ooh. I think that's very, very different from different types of games. Like a, a game, uh, some some of the titles that have released in, in early access now, I'm, I'm, let's say Valheim, right? It's been a massive, massive super success, uh, and they are they are um, uh, they are still in early access. Uh, the game is sixteen something, right? Sixteen dollars or something, and it's it's a um, I don't know what. Big and they're adding to adding to the game at all times, right? I don't know when they will say that this is now. It's now it's a good. This is a good release. Now now we're done. This is we're out of early access now. So now we can start selling the game for like for real. Like this, I mean, some for some titles the early access period is the launch, right? For a game like Valheim, is I'm very much doubtful that, and I'm just guessing now. I don't know anything um, that it will. Uh, it will probably not have a massive super spike once it's out of early access. Um, and, uh, and I think that's relatively common uh, among games on like um, platforms like Steam, that the early access is, is kind of more and more becomes the release of the game because you, you get the traction, you get a lot of that uh, growth. The early access period is a good way for you to, to drive, to pull players in. Uh, because you, you can say that you're still in early access, you're constantly adding stuff, and people can join uh, early on. Uh, I myself, I'm still uh, on the on the. Uh, there's a game, there's a D and D game, uh, Baldur's Gate Three that I'm you know very excited for. I'm still it's still in beta or, or early access somehow, but I'm like I'm I'm not gonna. Uh, this is a story heavy game. I don't want to get into that uh before right before it's you know properly released so i'm kind of waiting and i'm anxiously always looking at the steam page it's very different for different types of, of, of games uh, while i think that the soft launch is slightly different but i but i have very little uh, mobile knowledge so i think that we could refer to tom perhaps or, or someone else for that jump in guys feel free well concerning mobile industry we do not really have early access. Uh, usually when we launch a game, it's uh, it's launched. But what we do have is like a launch shops uh, period before launching the game, which is where we just target a, few, a small segment of users, you know, to have some uh, some metrics. And we are usually know, we usually know if a game is getting ready to go, uh, looking at the LTV, the lifetime value. If it's good one after like D4, D7, then we think it's a good moment to launch it. and 
I mean, we could uh, still optimize it for weeks and weeks, but we prefer to launch it, see how it goes, and maybe after one, two, three weeks, then do again uh, optimization parts in order to uh, reduce the uh, the decrease in LTV. But uh, over optimization is really not the good idea, especially in our fields. Hundred uh, percent. Hmm? I want to go to Johan, and then we can go to William. Yeah, exactly. So it feels like with early access these days, the last couple of years, players are getting more and more uh, expecting more polish, right? So early access used to be something that is allowed to be a bit rough and testing the concept and more of that level. But these days, if you release something in early access that is very buggy and shaky, then it's going to give a very different uh, impression than it used to. Uh, and then also like regarding soft launches in, mo in the mobile space, just like uh, Tom says, it's like it's good to, sometimes you have something you want to validate with real players. You might pick a small market somewhere and you validate maybe the core mechanics without the monetization. But if you have the possibility to have some monetization there as well, sure, go ahead and do that as well to get a, a better set of uh, data. But um, yeah, that's my take. Nice. Uh, Vilja, thoughts? Yes, yeah, so I, I completely agree on the heightened expectations on um, on quality and so on. So, um, but assuming that you go into into soft launch or early access and everything, to to me, I think that when you're confident about the performance of the game and that the player feedback generally is positive, uh, that's when you should consider uh, going going into you know so-called full launch because you can do a big marketing push at that time as well. So you can get. Uh, increase sales and so on. Um, also worth mentioning when you go to uh, you know full launch, uh, game sites might either re-evaluate re your game or do you know their first time proper review on everything. So it does change something. But um, again, uh, the expectations are certainly higher these days than they uh, than they used to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking from a consumer point of view. It's like if there's a price tag, and obviously you're expecting some, you have some expectations. And if that price is like $17, then okay, you know, I'm expecting some fun, please. But again, the early access part, I feel like there's a lot of benefits. So you're kind of silly not to use it because you get that sympathy. Obviously, it's a bit less now because there's more expectation. But you get sympathy. You maybe get a bit more feedback from consumers because they're like, ah, they're still building the game. I can be a part of this process. But if it's a full launch, there's perhaps less expectation that what I say is going to have a difference. You know, I'm, go I'm personally going to have less kind of forgiveness for like a bug or something so why not take advantage of that and i actually chatted to people at coffee stain uh, recently in satisfactory and Valheim, still in early access because there's just more stuff to add so like why not keep it in there because there's still more things coming uh, awesome let's move on to the final question henrik what is your question and the context behind it well, my, my question is, uh, the short of my question is, what needs to com be communicated with the audience before releasing the game? And my, the, I'm coming from this, from the angle that there's there's two things that we uh, develop as a game, as game developers. We get develop a game that is the stuff that the players play for a long time and love and, or, or don't, or don't like, or think is meh or whatever. Uh, and then there is the product, the, the thing that makes them buy the game uh, in the first place. And this primarily relates to uh, console and PC games, I would guess. Um, it's a little less perhaps on the on the um, mobile side, I'm just guessing here. But the, for on the PC side, 
you need to have a uh, your your landing page on Steam has to look nice. You have to have a nice cover art for your box. Uh, you know, back in the day when remember plastic, we bought games on plastic. Uh, but you know, there's there's some certain something you have to communicate something about the the game to to the to the players, etc. So so and and we we call that the product that what 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 makes the people what makes people want to buy. Uh, the game and, and, and that part, uh, that aspect of the game is the, what we call the product. Um, and <clears throat> my part of this is also with ties into community, right? When we, we talked about sequels, uh, in order to to have, uh, you have to, I, I feel that you have to communicate some things to, to the player so that there is an understanding. Like basically the early access aspect is one of those things like if you you say early access expectations uh, change slightly uh, people are, are a little bit more less uh, uh, harsh on you perhaps but if you release a game and you have a, a price tag of let's say 30 dollars uh, people will expect something and that there's a communication somewhere that uh, they need to know what their people need to know what they're buying otherwise they might not like it right and and this this area is difficult to me, and I'd like to see if there's any thoughts around this. Now we're off, we're probably not marketers, anyone of us here, but still the, there's a an understanding of of, of the, what the player wants among us all. I think. Nice. I want to have Ivilia start on this, please. Um, I think you touched upon it. We touched upon a couple of things already, but uh, I think that the the unique selling points, your USPs, obviously that's something that you wanna you wanna get in front of the players. What do you want players to be excited about uh, when it comes to your game? Um, and assuming that you have a really good game and you you you, you tell everybody uh, and they they get it, uh, you also need to inform like, are you? early access or is this full launch like the price tag will be an indication on this but uh, you don't want to buy a $60 game and oh yeah by the way we're early access you know that's that's not that's unforgivable um, I think also the, the monetization model like uh, people are getting you know used to um, you know transact like we're not done with the game once you paid for it once you know you use like well what's the content that I'm going to get excited about that I might consider uh, paying for later and everything. And I, I strongly believe in that if you pay money, you should be happy with what you get. Um, I'm not going to talk about loot boxes, but um, you know, there, there, there is, there is, there is something to be said there. Um, so yeah, the monetization model: uh, Are you full, pr full price or free to play? Do you have battle pass, season stuff like that? Um, and additionally, I think that depending on the game that you're making, we talked, we talked a lot about server-based games and. Um, Another question that comes up is, will you have mods? Will you have private servers? What's your space for user-generated content? Um, you know, things like that. So like, what's the full experience? And just having user-generated content can be seen as a positive, for instance, even if players never engage with it, because like, well, that's pretty cool that they took the time to do that. Um, and uh, the one thing I'll say is that you, uh, and I don't see anyone doing it now but like what you shouldn't do is like you shouldn't well actually there are games doing it now uh, you shouldn't claim that your cgi and pre-rendered gameplay that they are real um i think that there will be some harsh awakening awakenings in the near to mid future who knows about games that uh, that go down that path and it's it's really really dangerous so i don't recommend it do not lie good advice uh johan thoughts 
Yeah, so taking some example from live service games again. Uh, for example, when you release events or seasons in an existing game, it's good to build excitement and make sure uh, as many players as possible are aware of what's coming uh, so they can participate from day one, basically. And especially if there are like tournaments or other competitive elements involved, um, or you might have like rewards that are only acquired at that event. So then it's really good for players to know about, otherwise they might be very disappointed. Uh, and basically building hype and get uh, players back that haven't played for a while. They might be waiting for new content. This is a good time to, you know, showcase. This is the next iteration. This is what's coming. This is what you're going to be able to do uh, very soon. Um, and also, like yeah, regarding regarding like Steam and trailers and early access and what players expect there, with like the marketing versus the reality of the game, that's a that's a tricky question as well. It's like there's an excellent guy called uh, Chris Zukowski. He writes a lot of game marketing um, blog posts and does videos and stuff like that. There's basically like a lot of ways for you to optimize your trailers to the behavior of how players browse steam so that you optimize for that and make sure like it's in line with what they expect you get to the point as soon as possible no slow logos fading in and so on and also the summary is what you actually write what's the most important for your summary maybe you don't start with all the lore and a story but you get to the point of what type of game this is and in a very short sleek format uh, used to generate a content is also very good to to pinpoint like if it's a sandbox kind of element game then you, you can put that there so people know it so yeah a lot of things awesome i'm going to move on to tom now and i know voodoo doesn't necessarily communicate uh, however but yeah even if you have any thoughts as a consumer as well well the thing is we don't communicate before the release but in the past release, we're also doing what we call the cross-promotion, so also communicating over the other games from the brand uh, in order to keep like a community around the Voodoo uh, industry. We also do a lot of user acquisition with the bidding, uh, trying to push all the games in the top charts. Um, we also work a lot with influencers in order to make our game visible uh, from people playing with them. And we also have like a whole new program called Monkey, uh, which is uh, like a challenge we do on TikTok. Uh, that's a lot of people just to play with the games, and if they get a lot of viewers uh, playing our games, then they can get, make some money. So our communication and our marketing is usually done like post-release, and it's of course not neglected. Um, but we do not really have a need to do it before because we, as I told you, we don't, we're not making sequels. We don't have like a big use base, uh, such as Square Enix or such as Blizzard. We are mostly building games as we can on the go, and then we are trying to keep them in, in our in our sphere of games. And if they are leaving for another competitor, then we are just going to get them back. That's how we do. Awesome. Um, I had one follow-up question for Vilya, just on one thing he said. Uh, so you mentioned kind of a nice little list of like things to highlight before communicating, but I just wondered uh, why uh, specifically, like for example informing whether it's kind of a season pass or like the monetization model like why is that so important to communicate that before releasing the game so like everything you can do to set the correct expectations is good 
um, the worst thing you can do is um, is have players find out afterwards what your real intentions were. And the internet being what it is these days, this can you know completely spin out of control from uh, you know what was an innocent omission. So so being open about that is is quite important. Um, just setting expectations so that there, like the fewer surprises there are, the better, the better that is. And uh, anything doing with money, you know, depending on how you do it, you can be seen as greedy or not. Um, so, you know, it's the, the fewer chances you take in that area, the better it is for everyone, I think. Yeah, I can follow up on that slightly. I think that there's there's an interesting case there around uh, expectation managing expectations uh, and we mentioned earlier do not lie uh, and I think that there's there's a marketing beat that you you, you don't want to do like you, this is a single play game you're not gonna say oh you this in the, in our game you can't play with your friends I mean that that's not a, a marketing direction you want to go in I, I assume but unless you're really smart and do it like do some sort of devolver weirdness out of it right but but the uh, getting the expectation right and getting the understanding what the value. This is also something that kind of annoys me a little bit, and I'm, I'm uh, like the there's an expectation that uh, any game should give hours, endless hours of 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 joy, right? And there's a certain like I see people sometimes on Twitter they they screen cap. Um, reviews on their game and someone has 170 hours in some game and they post that they do not recommend this is the, you know not enough gameplay for for uh, for this uh, high price tag or, or whatever right and, and it becomes a very it's it's hard to manage everyone's expectations and you, you i mean the internet is the internet there's going to be people out there um, but but there's all it's always super interesting in the same way as there's a contract and we talked about this about uh, fi firing a gun should feel good the second to second gameplay should feel good the expectations of me shooting a shotgun in a game is is going to be uh, there's a contract with, between me and the game uh, the game designer that uh, this should probably feel uh, be interesting to do when i achieve something fun in the game and the same way on the outside there's an implicit contract somewhere about getting something for for a certain amount of, of of uh, uh, money like a 20 or 30 dollars uh, but there's also an, a growing expectation even for for early access games that that the game experience is so is supposed to be so so good um and and match every expectation even if they might not be reasonable so i, I find it difficult but I, but i also find it very difficult to to say that a game is done until the market understands what the game is. I think, I think that, that's, that's the context where I wanted to come back to uh, when I started thinking about my question. Is, is the game really done if the market don't understand what they're doing in the game? And I believe that if, and I, and I fully believe that you can release something in early access and be very clear that this is a game where it's really fun to jump and shoot, but you can't save your pro progress. We're working on that, but you can still sell it. If that gets communicated correctly, uh, very early on, like super duper clear that you can't save your progress. This is this is a you know very early state, but it's super fun to to jump and shoot or whatever. So I mean, it's very it's a very fluid state to say when the game is is done and ready to ship and hit the market, right? And uh, I find it interesting. It's all psychology at at the end of the day. It's not necessarily a technical <laughs> technical question, uh, at least not one hundred percent. And, and and to add to that, like a game these days, 
they're like the the games as a service model games are never done and that is also the contract and the, the value proposition is like come join us and be on this journey and even if it's not perfect to begin with it like in many cases they get better in many cases um it doesn't it doesn't get better so i think that's um that's that's important uh, to to mention as well uh, that games like they never finish they go for 10 years i mean that's what we hope for right when we build them so like that a lot awesome um i want to try something new guys uh, i want to kind of recap on all the questions because i've wrote down some notes and it's, i feel like it'll be a nice little kind of clip of like what we've said so it's like when it comes to Vilyar's question, what was the most ready game worked on? What led it to being more ready? So things I wrote down was like the technical foundation have nothing to bloat it, so to speak. So nothing in there that doesn't need to be in there. Uh, a good estimation of live player base. If you don't have that, problems can arise. Uh, a complete gameplay loop. So you just know where you're going to go. Uh, ready when the cost per instant was really low. So if it's already doing well, then it's time to ship it. And like second to second gameplay, if that feels really amazing um, without the metagame features, then you're starting to look like you're close to being ready. And when it comes to Johan's question, is there anything else you have to consider when releasing a sequel? And one thing is just, do you have enough fe new features or is it just a reskin? Uh, if you're going to add stuff, uh, we talked about Seth Meyers' quote, which I really liked, which is consider what to innovate, what to keep and what to remove. I feel like you, have, you should have a little bit of that. If you're just adding stuff on top, you can feel like DLC. But if you like changing core gameplay aspects, then yeah, you can call it a sequel, right? And what Tom said to listen to the community, uh, which I found obviously really important. So obviously, not everyone has, not everyone's opinion is equal. I, I think I can say that without being um, accosted. But yeah, actually listening to the feedback is really important. And when Thomas's question, what feature do you systematically A/B test when launching a game? The marketing material. First and foremost, I think is a great idea. Otherwise, you can just waste a lot of time, right? Getting the art style right. And then features that got a lot of discourse internally. That's obviously seems like a no brainer. And then the unknowns, like jo Johan said, uh, ones that aren't battle tested by other games, uh, you might want to A B test that. And yeah, when it comes to big games, the server performance and possibly bringing consultancy firms in, and, you know, how does it actually feel to shoot a monster? Stuff like that, like the things that actually matter. And when it comes to Henrik's question, Finally, what needs to be communicated before releasing the game? The USPs, and I think setting expectation was the big theme of that question. If you set correct expectations, then you won't get dumpster fire reviews, and also you won't get you just. I feel like it's just more happy, like you're kind of doing what you said you're going to do, and then everyone's just happy about it. And obviously, CGI trailer, don't claim it's not, you know, not the game. But actually, what Johan said was really cool. Just so avoid disappointment. Like if there's a limited time offer, there's a new feature coming, make it known. Don't just keep it to only people who's in the game. And what Henrik said, keeping the summary short, um, so you don't lead with the law. Just keep it uh, nice and short. Just actually what people need to know. Awesome. Guys, I think I will conclude there. I think we got through a lot in a very short time. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining so thank you Vilya, Johan, Thomas and Herrick for joining the Evolution Gaming Podcast and providing your insights and thank you everyone at home for listening goodbye everybody <laughs>